being open to other people's perspectives. That was definitely something that I learned to be really valuable because as you say, sustainability touches every aspect of the business. And it's important to understand a little bit about each of those aspects and respect it and and maybe sometimes pivot your thinking if you learn something new. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode, the second in our third annual August series on real estate and carbon, is with Caroline Johns from Pembroke, the private real estate investment firm associated with the parent company of Fidelity Investments. This episode complements my recent conversation with Brad Doxer from GreenGen, where Brad provided a great overview on how institutional real estate companies are addressing carbon. Caroline and I get to drill into the weeds of how one global investment company is addressing this challenge throughout their business. Each of these conversations take a very different track, and I have such different takeaways from each. For me, three points to draw out from this conversation. First, Pembroke is a long-term owner, and echoing my interview with Mark Preston from Grosvenor last year, the long-term investment horizon makes investment in sustainability much more obvious. That does not mean that a long-term owner does not have the same level of discipline as other investment managers, but the long-term lens does hugely affect perspective. And as Caroline and Brad each make clear, sustainability is no longer viewed as something nice to do, but something that's pretty much mandatory in today's world, and when done thoughtfully, truly return-maximizing, not concessionary. Second, I loved hearing Caroline's career journey alongside the evolution of Pembroke's thinking to create Caroline's formal cross-disciplinary sustainability role within the company. Many real estate companies are still somewhere along their own journey to operationalize their own approach to sustainability, which will often include someone in a role like Caroline's, or you remember my past interviews with Sarah Neff from Lendlease and Elena Alshuler from LaSalle Advisors, as well as the internal cross-cutting infrastructure to make this happen throughout the organization. As we're learning, this will come together, but it will come together differently within different organizations, sometimes with different reporting lines, sometimes including S and G, and sometimes just E. All interesting dynamics, but again, I guarantee you that if not already, this will be a big part of your real estate organization into the future. Third theme. Caroline used a term I'd never heard that I meant to go back and get her to repeat, but didn't. That word was palimpsest, P-A-L-I-M-P-S-E-S-T, which is defined on my Google as something reused or altered, but still bearing visible traces of its prior form. It sounds like a word from Harry Potter to me, but it's a great term that really defines what we do as we put successive layers of development into already great neighborhoods. I love it. Palimpsest. Palimpsest. Hopefully I get this right. ZRG's real estate team can help your organization think about how you're approaching this important discipline and assist you in finding great talent to help you move this forward. We're all thinking about the future of the real estate business and where the puck is absolutely going. And this is one of those roles where careers are being built, companies are moving towards, and a big difference is being made. This series within Leading Voices is part of our commitment to help make that happen. As always, I hope that you're enjoying Leading Voices and that you find value and wisdom from this week's episode. 
If so, please recommend the show and your favorite episodes to your friends and colleagues. If you have comments, questions, or guest suggestions, or want to get in touch about how ZRG can help your company grow, expand, or think through your human capital needs in the real estate space, please email me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Caroline. Caroline Johns, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate, and thanks so much for being on the show. This is our third annual two episodes in August series on carbon and the real estate industry. Uh, two weeks ago, we released my interview with Brad Doxer from GreenGen. He actually introduced us. And today I'm speaking with you. In some ways, we're moving from the general overview that he gave into the specifics of what you do in your portfolio, how you do it, and how you block and tackle. So a very, very different conversation. I'm really excited to have you on the show. Great. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Cool. So first thing, just talk a little bit about who you are, your role is, and what Pembroke is, a company I don't know well, I've heard the name for years, but help our audience understand who you are, what your portfolio is, what your work in the real estate business is. My name is Caroline Johns. I'm Director of Sustainability for Pembroke. We are an international real estate advisor across 13 key markets, and we actively invest the private capital on behalf of our investors, FMR LLC and FIO Limited. We are a subsidiary of FMR LLC, which is also the ownership company of Fidelity Investments, but our business and funding are completely separate and our investors aren't affiliated with each other. We target investment opportunities where we can add value through developing, repositioning, or buying core properties in well-located global cities with proven long-term growth potential. And since our investors are independent, we're able to have a thoughtful patient capital approach. This really gives us the opportunity to hold our commitments to sustainability and design and keep the occupant experience at the very forefront of all of our decisions. Mm -hmm. And, And I have several of examples of that that I'm looking forward to getting into as we talk, but I've been here for about 12 years. Cool. Well, we'll talk about your career path and we may start there in a few minutes because to give context again for who you are, and what you do there, talk a little bit more about the pair. And it sounds like it's the capital and family or something like that behind Fidelity, a company that we all know. What does long-term patient capital mean? What's the trading volume of assets? If I think of Fidelity and Magellan Fund from when I was a kid, you know, they were the big trader. But what does long-term perspective mean in this case? Sure. It's really private capital, the number of shareholders that we take very seriously as a direction for diversified investments. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's across many different markets. And lots of mixed use buildings in really the best locations in some very progressive cities that are are leading the way in terms of design and sustainability and in terms of long term we don't have a set fund the way many other companies do so there's no expectation on specific time horizon and we invest when it makes sense and we're able to take really complicated situations and and turn assets into really much more interesting, exciting places to be because of that long-term horizon. Mm. It's interesting. If you have a long-term horizon, some like Grosvenor may say, we never sell. You may say, we'll sell, but we don't have an end 
date and time. And that still Mm -hmm. gets you to the same perspective of long-term hold, whatever that means. Yes, I agree with that. We do sell sometimes if it if it makes sense, if it's, mm-hmm. there's a point in the asset life cycle or the market when it just makes sense to pivot and reinvest the funds somewhere else, mm-hmm. that does happen. But there isn't a specific flow or churn year by year. It's whatever makes sense for the company at the time and the investors. Got it. And talk about the 12 or 13 markets and talk about the type of assets that you have in those markets historically and currently in the portfolio. And that will, again, give context for what we're going to talk about in terms of dealing with sustainability. Absolutely. We are across four continents. So in the U.S., we are in Boston, D.C., San Francisco, and Seattle. And we're in London, Stockholm, Helsinki, Oslo, Munich, and Hamburg. And then we're in Tokyo, Sydney, and Melbourne. Wow. So it's it's quite a wide range of really exciting, interesting cities and fun fun to share lessons learned across the markets and best practices okay. to to really amplify the the impact. Yeah, and what type of assets do you hold? They're mostly mixed use properties uh, with retail at the bottom and and office up above. We have a couple of residential, but it's mostly a mixed use portfolio. Uh-huh. And mixed use may be largely driven by office, both historically and still. So it'll be interesting to contrast how those different markets are reacting to the changes in the office world. Sure. Well, I think it's interesting. The the challenges that offices are facing right now in some of our markets, I think, are temporary. Tenants are always going to be driven to places that are really well designed and efficiently run because obviously if the equipment is efficient, there are lower operating expenses and that's extremely important to the tenants. And so if you have a place that is is designed to be a really wonderful experience, there are lots of synergies with environmental performance and and then business best practices. So in terms of people planet profit, I think as people come back to the office across our markets, or there might be temporary blips. We really see it as continuing to be a priority. We shared a tenant survey globally with our tenants this past spring, and 90% of the tenants indicated that sustainability continued to be a high priority for them. Um, We also collaborate really closely with tenants in many of our markets to ensure that what we're delivering is aligned with their goals. As more and more tenants continue to have corporate goals that they are held accountable to, mm-hmm. we need to be a space that is safe for them and that they can rely on that we will represent those goals on their behalf. And so one really interesting example currently is in Helsinki, Finland, where we are delivering a development hand-in-hand with a tenant pre-leased that's Nordea Bank. Mm-hmm. And sustainability credentials were paramount to them. And they needed to have a building that was going to be high performance and it's going to be lead platinum. There will be geothermal wells for heating and cooling in the building and there will be solar panels. And the tenant is really excited to occupy it and and wants to make it their headquarters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sometimes those are invisible things to uh, the the occupying people of the tenant. So the tenant likes those things, 
But the humans who walk through the turnstiles may or may not know about that. So how do they appreciate that? And also the space and the feeling in the lobby and the feeling of enlivenment that comes in your building is different than if there's solar panels that they can't see and there's a geothermal that I hope they don't see. Sure. Yeah, those are definitely invisible. And the occupant experience of having lots of natural light and having a really inviting lobby that's going to pull them in and potentially act as a third space for having meetings or a cup of coffee or clear your mind, that's absolutely essential. And those things are so closely tied, though, I think, with making these places places that continue to deliver on all fronts. If the building systems are operating more efficiently Mm -hmm. and not requiring as much maintenance, then the spaces are going to be more comfortable. And if the space is easy to access through things like destination dispatch, then the, the occupant won't have to, you know, wait to get up to their space. And, you know, the enjoyment of the space, I think, is is just as important as the environmental pieces. Uh-huh. But yeah, some of them are are absolutely invisible, but they're important to the company that's making the decision to be there. So a couple questions, and we're gonna stick on office for a few minutes before we get into the broader topics of carbon because you got us here. One is you use a term that I hadn't heard in one place before, people, planet, profit. So I wanna unpack that one a little bit. And then also, what's is Destination Dispatch the elevator that takes you to your space? Yes. So Destination Dispatch is when you go into an office building and you tell the person at the front desk who you're visiting, and they say, oh, go to elevator F. And that one comes for you, and there's no buttons to push, and it automatically, automatically takes you to the 10th floor. That's called Destination Dispatch. And it improves the efficiency of the elevator trips because it consolidates people who are going mm-hmm. to similar places. But it's it's also a nicer occupant experience, right? If you don't have to wait as long, the idea is that it, it gets you there faster. So one really interesting example of where we've incorporated a lot of these things with occupant impact and experience, but also energy efficiency is 100 California Street in San Francisco, which I know you're familiar with. Yes. And so we acquired that building in 2014 and it had original equipment. All of the equipment was original from 1959. And it was built as the original West Coast headquarters for Bethlehem Steel. Mm -hmm. And so it was really well-designed, over 50 years old. So it was classified as a historic building by the city of San Francisco. So externally, you know, there wasn't a lot we could do, but one of the reasons I mention it now is because we were putting in, or the prior owner was putting in destination dispatch. And so we inherited that project to make the elevators more efficient. We completely blew out the lobby and made a new tenant experience for arrival. We put in a new end of trip facility in the basement, which many people know now it's a place for bike storage and showers and lockers. But at the time it was a best practice that we had brought from a development that we just completed in Sydney, Australia. And it was best in class for San Francisco and being a biking city, that was really valuable. So we then, as we were modernizing the elevators, we extended one up one floor into the the 14th floor. The top of the building was originally just a space for air, air handling units and cooling towers. It had some open light wells. 
and we had a tiny little property management office up there with no windows. And then on the top of that was a historic penthouse that couldn't be touched <laughs> due to the historic designation, even though it couldn't be seen from the street. But we took the opportunity to move the air handling units up one floor into that historic penthouse and move the cooling towers up to the roof, relocate the generator, put a new generator on the roof from the basement mm -hmm. and create this new 20,000 square foot leasable space at the top of the building with panoramic views of the city. And, um, and then best of all, we created a private roof deck for the tenant at the top of the building that had a views of the ferry building mm -hmm. and the San Francisco Bay It's one of the, my favorite views in San Francisco. And, you know, this, this special tenant experience could only really be achieved through this long-term approach of doing the right thing because all of the prior owners had just maintained the equipment really well and kept it chugging. And we really completely repossessions the building over time. Right. And also, as you did that, um, assuming you upgraded the HVAC, all the systems mm -hmm. to be mm -hmm. of the current generation or the next generation. That's correct. That's correct. Absolutely. So I'm curious to think about that building, which I know really well. I've worked on two caddy corner, in two caddy corner buildings from that building, okay, not at 101 Cal, but the other two. <laughs> And I used to work out at the 24-hour fitness in your building, which was gross, by mm -hmm. the way. Just my only <laughs> recollection is gross. I'm going to get sued by 24-hour fitness. But let's compare that building now today and how it's operating and how it's feeling and how your experience from an economic standpoint is with the building in Helsinki. Because I'm thinking that people downtown Helsinki want to be downtown, and I'm thinking San Francisco is still a struggling place. Sure. San Francisco is, you know, they're going through a little bit of a hard time right now. I think, you know, asset managers and, and property managers are are being really creative to work with tenants and keep them happy. And I think, you know, the fact that that building was positioned with some really strong amenities is is definitely an advantage. And I think ultimately having such a good location is not something that you can change. Mm -hmm. Let, let's move on. And let's Totally changed subjects. I want to know how you got here, and then I want to understand your job and your role in the company and what sustainability means within your company and how you deal with that. But before that, how did you get a sustainability job at Pembroke? I think you went to Trinity. I think you went to Harvard. Kind of walk through that and then into your career, just so we get a sense of your background. Sure. Well, you know, it's kind of an interesting path because growing up, sustainability was not a career path. It just didn't exist. Yep. I was always obsessively passionate about sustainability on my own. I don't know. I would take paper out of my parents' recycled bins and make little paper pads for them, gluing them together and things like that. Um, and then I went to Trinity College and had a really wonderful experience. I majored in art history, but with a focus on architecture and urban planning. I double majored in Italian, so I spent a semester studying in Rome. And I think the experience there was really fundamental for me in terms of the built environment and what sustainability means and what long-term means. The urban planning and the architecture durability of things there, it's just mind-blowing. And so it, it made me think a lot about how that compares to a lot of buildings and places that are delivered today. Mm -hmm. And and so I wound my way through a number of other positions and jobs, 
at art galleries and museums and a real estate attorney. Uh, and I wound my way back to the GSD at Harvard for a degree in urban planning. And I focused on real estate development, sustainability, and urban design. And I, I studied the way a lot of other companies were doing it around the world and decided I really want to work for a long-term investor because I think there are natural, there's a natural alignment with the built environment mm -hmm. and sustainability and design and, and the kinds of things that should be prioritized for the human experience and not just a financial return, but mm -hmm. that the financial return will be aligned when it's done correctly. And so I, when I was about to graduate, I discovered a, a temporary opportunity here at Pembroke and actually on the marketing team. Mm -hmm. And at first I hesitated because I wasn't really thinking about marketing as a career. I, I wasn't sure that's where exactly I wanted to be in terms of the, the role at a long-term investor, but I consulted with, uh, with an advisor, a mentor in the industry. And, and he said, Caroline, it's a great opportunity. You need to go for it. And so I pounced and I expressed my interest in the project management side of things as well mm -hmm. and convinced them to to give me a chance on the project management side when the, the marketing director returned and grew that into a role in the development team that I, I stayed in for 10 years here. Well, okay. So let's go back because you made a comment and I just want to think about it a little bit because you said when you were at the program at Harvard, you studied the best practices across the world in terms of sustainability. And I'm just curious from an academic and a get outside of what we do every day, what did you learn from that? What did you see there and where were those best practices and what did that mean? Sure. Well, one place that I, I really dug into and was really inspired by was London. I had a studio that was focused on a neighborhood in London and so we, we studied what really makes effective buildings and effective neighborhoods. And we went to London, the, the neighborhood was Shoreditch. If you're familiar with London, it's kind of a, um, on the outskirts of the city of London. And, and I was so inspired by the potential of the built environment to, uh, to create these long-term experiences through sustainability and design and talking with developers and landlords there and and even engineers and architects who were taking a much more forward-looking approach than I had experienced in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And it, I just found it to be so inspirational. And then looking at potential opportunities here, there didn't seem to be as many who were really focused on the long-term aspect of it. And so that's where I, I started to really study how sustainability and design and urban planning were really potentially aligned with some of these longer term mm -hmm. investment principles. And when you think about that town, I, I just want to stick on it for a moment because I'm imagining what this town looks like and I'm imagining it's been there for a while. So sus does sustainability mean it's been there for a while or does it mean, and does it mean maybe it's been there for a while and then everything else they put in there is something that's built to last? I'm trying to figure out what that means versus something that might be all new and all built and all created here. Sure, it's a, it's a great point. So I think um, 
it's not actually a town. I said on the outskirts, but it's a neighborhood of London. And so it's part of the urban fabric. It has been there for a while. There's a lot of history. And we talked a lot about the term called palimpsest, the layering of different interventions over time and, and kind of erasing and redrawing. But you still see the image of what was there before and mm -hmm. not losing the history, but just building right. up on it over time. And, and so building things to last is absolutely part of it. But we also studied a new development that has now been delivered, but it's called King's Cross Central, mm -hmm. which is in London. If you haven't seen it, it is phenomenal. It's 69 acres that was previously this desolate, underutilized neighborhood. And, and is now incredibly vibrant, full of architecture that is really inspirational and public realm experiences that that really um, blow your mind when you walk through it. We we know when those things work. I I was in Scandinavia a couple years ago, and nothing Absolutely. is slapped up to just be there. It it everything is permanent, and everything feels good together. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I think it doesn't have to be old it can certainly be new but it does have to be thoughtful uh -huh. and and that's something that that we really prioritize a lot here at Pembroke we take every decision very seriously and can consult different aspects of the business uh which is you know having these different perspectives from different markets and different departments is really ultimately I think what drives success uh -huh. and and I think there's um different examples of how that works well with both redevelopment, but also with with new developments as well. Uh -huh. It's interesting when you love the built environment and you feel in your guts those things that work, and then you bring that to your job. Your job is different than that of a pure investor. It's a, a different Absolutely. lens through which to experience the real estate world. Absolutely, and you get the opportunity to experience something at the delivery that's really kind of magical. Right. Another example in London, this one actually with Pembroke. So 100 Cal was my first major role as a project manager mm -hmm. overseeing that redevelopment. And my second major one was taking a lot of the lessons learned from that to our team in London to assist with the planning and permitting and design process to redevelop one of our assets there. Mm -hmm. And that wound up being my most favorite experience so far here because it was a building that had been in our portfolio for 20 years. So the building equipment was getting towards the end of its useful life. Something had to be done. We had to make a decision around the, the investment and direction of the asset. But it has this most special location right across from St. Paul's mm -hmm. Cathedral. And so really great opportunity to take it and maximize it. And one of the most interesting aspects of it as we were looking at different things to do was in front of this building is a garden. Under the garden was a basement space where we kept a lot of the equipment. We had some really clever engineers and architects who had a concept to relocate that equipment to the roof of the building. We had to keep all of the equipment underneath the height limits of St. Paul's being so close to St. Paul's, which didn't have any wiggle rooms within inches uh -huh. and convert the building to be all electric and some net zero carbon building. Um, but then created this new leasable space under that garden and said, let's put a skylight in it to bring some natural light and maybe have a view of the dome. Well, 
as you can imagine, the city planners of London didn't, they weren't thrilled about the idea of just cutting a hole in this public private garden that many people pass through every day. And they said, um, you know, appreciate what you're trying to do, but that's just not going to work. And so we hired a really clever, smart landscape architect named mm -hmm. Tom Stewart Smith, who came up with a concept to put a reflecting pool over the skylight. And that reflecting pool now reflects the dome of St. Paul's. And as involved as I was with the permitting and the design right. process um, and seeing all the renderings, it's still, um, when I saw it in person for the first time last year, I just, tears came to my eyes. It was so, it's such an emotional experience because going through this transformation of how to revitalize a space and, you know, the building has its own story. It was really a complete transformation inside and out to bring more natural light in through a structural facade and um, so many different interesting challenges. But experiencing that moment of improving the public realm in, in such a magnificent way. That's, I think it's one of the most special places in London now. It's on the radar of Hollywood and um, it's, it's just a, a tremendous achievement. And do the people walking by that reflecting pool know what's underneath the pool? Do they see, they have any visibility or knowledge that there's a space down there? No, they shouldn't. Um, they, they don't, as far as I know, because there was a very very close concern about that from the, the planning. We we talked about this in several meetings, trying to go through different iterations with the planning department, if we could put a film underneath to really block the view. And we didn't want to reduce the amount of light coming in because obviously having a skylight, right. the whole point was to bring natural light in for that space underneath. And so our, our architect came up with a concept to put film just over the angles that would matter if you're peeking over so that you wouldn't be able to see and, and natural light could come through the rest. And we, we hired consultants to demonstrate the light quality that would be coming through. But um, ultimately, the planner said, we're still not convinced you need to show us. And so our landscape architect built a quarter scale model wow. of this whole experience. And so it was quarter scale, and then it was just half of it, they put a mirror up in it. And we couldn't put it in the garden in place at the time because it was under construction. So he set it up in his own garden outside of London. We took the train out to experience it in this wonderful surrounding of beautiful landscape, had, our, had the city planners come with us to experience it. And we crawled under this model to look up and see what it would look like. And, and they simulated the light levels that would be under the under the reflecting pool and and then you could climb up on a stool and look over mm -hmm. and look at it from all angles and really evaluate it and they were convinced and in reality that's the way it's playing out so it was, it was really a, a thorough thoughtful process so talk then so you were a project manager for 10 years and then you switched to the sustainability role so what caused the switch now that I know your background in this, what caused the switch? What's the job? And this actually matters. Who do you report to? How does that work hierarchically within the organization? Because I'm trying to map this out for others as well. 
sustainability, as I said before, is always something that I was just passionate about. It's just always kind of in the back of my mind, churning and churning. And this is something that I wanted to be spending more and more time on. And it was certainly important to me that sustainability was important to Pembroke and that on every project I worked on, that was a major focus. But I just knew that there must be a bigger focus on it out there. And I started to hear about other roles. And one day I, I talked to my manager, uh, who's um, actually still my manager. His name is Andy Dankworth. He's the head of design and development for the company. He, I was talking with him one day about how I liked being a project manager, but that's not what I wanted to do for the rest of my career. And he said, well, what do you want to do? That's fine, but you know, tell me what you want to do. And I said, sustainability. And at the time, you know, there were starting to be roles emerging around it, but it really wasn't a thing. And what year was this? That is a great question. Pre-pandemic? It was pretty early on. It was definitely pre-pandemic. It was really early on. Um, it was probably 2015. Okay. And, and I said, I don't know. I just want to do sustainability. And he said, all right, well, you know, give it some thought and we can keep talking about this and, you know, come back to me when you have a better idea of what that role might look like. And I kept talking with mentors internally and externally and, and put some thoughts together and, and pitched them and kept working on it and got everyone internally excited about the prospect of adding value through a portfolio wide lens to sustainability that previously committing to it asset by asset was really important, but we need to understand our metrics in a centralized way, we're now pulling in all of our consumption data into one platform, and we've set portfolio-wide goals of achieving net zero carbon for the operation of our assets by 2035 or sooner, and net zero carbon for the whole life of our assets, including embodied carbon by 2050 or sooner. And we want to do it in a real and meaningful way. We're holding ourselves accountable. And, um, and so the actions of, of what it will take to do that through upgrading equipment and converting buildings to be all electric. Uh, it's, it's challenging, but it's, it's been a really interesting journey. So that in 2021, that became a full-time role for me to focus on. And then in January of this year, we hired a project manager to support me um, on the implementation piece <clears throat> so that we can really deliver on what we've on what we've announced. Okay, so let's go back to that. And so you said you started the conversation in 2015 that there was a role that would be full-time sustainability. It didn't happen for five years? Well, it's just, it was a, it was a small conversation in 2015. Uh -huh. And it took time to grow. And I got to know people around our company in different markets and in different departments and understanding their perspectives and helping to build momentum internally with having different supporters, but also understanding different, different challenges that departments were experiencing, I began to better build the business case for, for having this role. And, and yeah, sometimes these things I think do take That's some okay. time. <laughs> so that when you landed in the role, what define the role? Because I want to think of it as a cross-cutting role that affects every discipline and every person mm -hmm. in the company if it does. Mm -hmm. And what that means, and I want to go into each of the disciplines and how you play with them. But I sure. also think that creating the role as a standalone role and a portfolio-wide role also requires a different level of commitment by the company, wherever it sits. 
But that mm-hmm. commitment Absolutely. to portfolio goals is different when you embody that. And then you want to be responsible for that and make it work. You're accountable for that. Certainly. Yep. As we develop our business priorities for the coming year, sustainability is one of the pieces in that presentation that that has a big focus area. You know, each of our markets has a focus area and sustainability has its own focus area. And so it's it's certainly, you know, a standalone important commitment that the company is committed to. But as you say, it's also hand in hand with all of these other departments. So I, I might report to Andy, who's the head of our design and development, but every month and sometimes more frequently ad hoc, I'm meeting with our sustainability, executive sustainability council, who is Andy and Mark Takeuchi, who is the head of our asset management and development globally, and Dana Al-Husseini, who is our head of finance. And so getting those three perspectives on a regular basis is extremely valuable in, in integrating it throughout all of the other departments and making sure that the message is heard as a priority and mm-hmm. that it's part of every decision. Mm-hmm. And I, we're, lots of different subjects around this, because I'm again, mm-hmm. I want to try to generalize this from a conscious decision made in your company, both to create the goals and the role, which are the same thing, and then what buy-in it requires across the disciplines in the company and then how it changes how the company behaves. And, and last part to that is how much of this is the company's desire and does it differ market to market because their stakeholders require it or laws require it? Absolutely. Well, let me take into that last part <laughs> first because it's the most interesting and also the most challenging okay. part of my job. Um, we, in all of our markets... There is a regulatory requirement to achieve net zero carbon by 2050 or sooner. And in many markets, it's constantly changing. Um, you know, Sydney has accelerated from 2050 a couple of years ago to 2040, and now it's 2035. And so keeping on top of all of these different moving pieces is, is something that's, that's really important. But, um, but also hard to do sometimes. And so when we were setting these goals, it was very important to us as a company that we not just set goals that sounded good. We wanted to set goals that were driven by data and informed by our actual assets. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing that we did was we embarked on an analysis of our whole portfolio where we looked at the cleanliness of the grids in each of our markets we then committed to buying renewable energy right away across our portfolio because we learned the sources of, of energy in some of our markets were were really not clean. And before we even embarked on the efficiency piece, we really wanted to set that piece in motion. And we gathered consumption data and information around the the age of the equipment in all of our buildings, the sources for the fuel and and the regulatory requirements that were coming down the line, we compiled it into a report that said, basically, we need to be net zero carbon for the operation by 2035 or sooner because markets are starting to demand it, regulations are going to require it, and with the natural life cycle of our building equipment, it's pretty well aligned anyway. As long as we're replacing equipment, we might as well 
do it the right way and and make an efficient long-term choice, which is naturally aligned with our our business approach anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so it it became kind of um, an inevitable direction that that was the year we would target. And and was some of this portfolio evaluation happening in the year between 2015 and 2021 when you took this job? <laughs> that was always happening. Um, the officially. We didn't begin that work until 2020. We actually kicked off a series of global workshops in March 2020, right as COVID was hitting and everybody right. went remote and we had already planned the workshops. We had a quick phone call to say, does this still make sense? And he said, absolutely. It, it is, and you know, sustainability is always going to be a business priority for us. So we need to move forward with what we planned, even if it's virtual. But as a global company, we've been working, you know, virtually and remotely for a long time anyway. And so we had workshops to determine the uh, materiality, the materiality assessment to determine which aspects of sustainability made the biggest difference to our business to focus on right away. We did a tenant survey and employee survey to really understand our stakeholders and, and make sure that that we were hitting on points that were important to everyone, whether it's thermal comfort or obviously indoor air quality became a bigger focus during that time and energy consumption, bringing down operating expenses and, and then started to make a plan to move forward. So 2020 was really when we started that analysis in a, in a more focused way at a portfolio level. Uh-huh. And what's interesting here is you're describing not backing into something, but consciously doing something and having a pretty high bar, I'm going to guess for a lot of our listeners, they're somewhere along this journey themselves. And lots of companies aren't there at all yet. So the discovery process that you're explaining, I think is really important. Thanks. Well, I think digging into the data makes a really big difference. It's, It's really hard to get accurate data and detailed insights on the buildings because of the way every building is metered differently or different equipment functions differently. At first, I thought it would be easy to build a spreadsheet that would say, all right, these five buildings need to convert boilers from gas to electric, and these five need to do this. And it's it's not that simple. Every building needs a different strategy. And we have we're in the really fortunate position of having a portfolio that's at a scale that is manageable so that we can do deep dives on all of our assets mm. and understand everyone at such a, a deep level. But ultimately having data-driven results is I think where companies need to be digging into and, and starting uh-huh. if they I, haven't. I meant to ask you this question at the beginning of the episode, how many different mm-hmm. assets are there in these 13 different markets? Well, it's an interesting question. There's 25 or 26 that I'm looking at closely because those are the ones that we are directly managing and that are not under redevelopment. Okay. That's good. That gives a sense of what size and scale means Mm -hmm. that you can handle it. Mm -hmm. And next question is when you do that analysis of the existing assets, were there any, you said, Hey, we have to sell them because we can't get them up to snuff or does every baby have a solution to it? always a solution. Um, We're still working through the technical details of what would be required to deliver and when it would make sense to deliver that. And if there is 
leasing value to accelerating some of these strategies because every asset is in you know a, a different place in terms of leasing life cycle or or tenant demand there is not yet any asset where we've said we cannot achieve this we need to sell this asset because it's going to be stranded tomorrow i think some assets are definitely more challenging than others mm-hmm. um, but it's really interesting to to think through creative solutions that are authentic and not just well you know we can't do it so we're just going to sell it and, and let me ask let's dig on that a little bit because i'm wondering if there's assets that are wonderful buildings that shouldn't be torn down also because of embedded carbon Mm -hmm. you're just not going to get to that same level of efficiency with. But if you think of the portfolio, you're safe. Or if you think of a city, hey, this building needs to be preserved. Anyhow, we're going to get rid of the wind running through the building, but we're not going to make it lead platinum. We just can't get there, but we'll get a third of the way there. And that's good enough portfolio wide in the city. Any comments to that? In terms of averaging out the portfolio so that some are winners and some are, you know, maybe not as strong, but the average is going to get us there? Yes, and or what you might have said is a stranded building, but if it's a historic mm-hmm. building in a wonderful town and it's a building that makes a difference on its street, but it's inefficient, regulations don't want to make you leave that, let that building die. Regulations might yeah. want the building to go, okay, we're going to accept this one because it just is. Well, it's a really interesting point. And I think as regulations evolve, there are going to have to be decisions like that that the city leaders face in terms of who gets penalized for having a historic building that is less efficient, but the embodied carbon, as you say, is still there. And you don't want to knock it down to build a new building that would be in compliance. Right. So I I hope that it doesn't go that way that Buildings that are doing the best they can, but they just happen to be historic, are going to get penalized. I don't see that happening. Um, we have an example of another building in London right now that's under redevelopment. It's behind the Bank of England. So it's another really right. excellent location. Mm-hmm. And when the team was looking at design and engineering options for what to do with it, obviously, we weren't touching the exterior. It's a beautiful 1800s building. But the building itself, the facade was leaky because it is older. And so the energy efficiency is never going to be as tight as a brand new construction. Mm-hmm. The embodied carbon comparisons is there's a no brainer. Um, even if we could knock it down, we wouldn't. But we're doing the best we can to make the building as efficient as possible with current high performance equipment. And and it's fully pre-leased. It's mm-hmm. something that you know the market has already indicated is is in high demand. <laughs> it, it's interesting. When, when I was in, in um, Copenhagen last year, there was an old school building and they had all these ugly pipes kind of either on the outside of the building with an, almost an exos, exoskeleton of the building to have pump in what might have been HVAC or something like that. And huh. some of these old historic buildings need something outside to solve the problem. I don't know if that's what I was looking at or not, but it bugged me because it was so ugly. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, some solutions are really not very visually pleasing, and I think it's going to take some creative ideas to to make it all work together so that the public realm, as I said before, is, is always prioritized. Yeah, because um, there's those trade-offs. If that building is part of the fabric of an area, 
again, I'm, I'm a big advocate, but let that building be leaky because everything else is perfect. And therefore, again, portfolio wide in a neighborhood or in a city, it's okay. Definitely. Lots of trade-offs and, and considerations. Yeah. You know. So I, w- I want to talk about different disciplines within the company, but before mm-hmm. that question of the thought of kind of advocate versus business person, pragmatism versus advocacy in this, and mm-hmm. how, or you have to be both. Absolutely. But advocate has to almost be the second name, not the first name, as you deal with your colleagues and as you deal with your investors and you deal out in the marketplace. I think that's true. I think one of the most important lessons I learned was understanding other people's perspectives and that it has to make business sense and figuring out how those two work together is essential to the success of these strategies. And they do work together. They and But yeah, I think if you deliver a place that works well for people, it's ultimately going to also be good for the environment and good for business sense. And I think internally building that momentum and, and that agreement is, is the same kind of approach that it, it has to work for each department. But there's also, it's okay to have a little element of education and bringing people along in the journey. And if they haven't, if they're not familiar with certain solutions to convert buildings to be all electric and how that might benefit the asset or the, the leasing of it, for example, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's absolutely essential to have experts come in and, and share that knowledge and, and help bring people up to speed of what's going on in other markets that are more advanced. And maybe maybe they haven't, they're not as familiar with, with the impact of, of things like geothermal. Mm-hmm. And, and talk about cost, benefit, payback period. I know at our house, when we mm-hmm. installed solar, the question was, okay, what's the payback? What's the payback? Mm-hmm. My, my wife's tougher than I am. I just wanted solar. So I'm therefore the advocate. And she's like, wait, this better pay back over five years for whatever period of time it is. And mm-hmm. on the conversation with Brad last week, he talked about the difference between payback period and capitalized value of something. But also if you're not selling, maybe it doesn't matter. But yes, it, it, payback is a different concept. So talk through that and how you think through that within your company. Absolutely. We certainly... First of all, on paper, we always look at payback just because it's important to know those metrics and um, and the anticipated timeline of it. But as Brad was indicating with capital value, but also with leasing value, there's this intangible aspect of payback that if it means that it lowers operating expenses and so tenants stay and they're happier or it increases some metrics about the building or you're able to achieve a higher sustainability certification and, and have credibility in the market you're going to be able to lease the building faster. If you have lower downtime and you can retain tenants longer, there's extremely high value in that. And so the payback of a specific piece of equipment is a little bit, it can be a little bit misleading. It's hard to quantify, but it's definitely higher than what that number usually shows. So you want to look at two things. You do want to contrast the less energy efficient model with the whatever the next generation is and say, yeah, this one has this payback, this has that payback, here's the numbers. Mm -hmm. However, 
in context of our hold period and in context of leasing and in context of the rest, the differential, yeah. it's really what the differential cost is, not the rest of it. Sure. Yeah, we have this really interesting complex stoplight system to compare and contrast different capital approaches of um, a building, whether we replace equipment in kind with the same kind of equipment that it has today, mm-hmm. or whether we upgrade it to something that might be higher performance or just a different system to bring the building closer to be net zero carbon. And and we go through all of those metrics of the upfront cost and the payback period, the tenant impact, both if it's a fully occupied building of what it would take to get that new system in place. Um, if there's leasing value of a number of um, tenant leases expiring that this might benefit. And there's probably 20 different categories that we go through and we put a stoplight system to it. And then we pull it back to a high level of saying, does this make sense? Or do we need to you know, look into different aspects of it further? Uh-huh. Well, also, if you have the the requirement of we're going to be net zero by 2035, mm-hmm. then that also changes this dynamic because you can't make the other decision, actually. Certainly. No, these are decisions with really long-term impact. Um, but it's still important to know the difference and mm-hmm. and how we're going to, you know, if there is a difference. Sometimes it's actually less expensive because of however it's engineered or the payback is faster. But it's really important to know the, the metrics and be able to make the business plan for that over time. Okay. So you're in the job you're in and you now mm-hmm. affect all aspects of the business. So talk about the company looking at an acquisition or a new development, either way. Mm-hmm. So inception mm-hmm. of, pro- of a project, how do you work with the team that makes those investment analyses? Well, it depends on the market. And um, in many cases, I get involved quite early because these decisions are often less expensive if we make them early on and, and commit to them rather than try to assess and change it halfway through the project, mm-hmm. which, you know, sometimes happens just because of, of changing regulations or demands, but but that could be really challenging. So I get involved early and, and meet with the team. We have a, a development going on right now in Stockholm where I meet with the team every month to talk about the material selection and the wellness credentials. And it's going, it's another one that's going to be lead platinum and, and going through different aspects of it and asking questions. And they're absolutely leading professionals. They know what they're doing, but it just helps to have kind of a portfolio perspective on some of these things and, and learn from them so that we can apply them across our other markets. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking in new development, that's a fairly straightforward pathway. I'm thinking of acquisitions, maybe more complex. I assume you're looking at buildings to buy. Yes. So I guess going back to your point, I don't know that it's always more straightforward with new development because in the places where we are, like the you know center of the city of Stockholm, there are challenges that... Uh, you know, we committed to geothermal wells, for example, but there's these historic tunnels underneath the building that we need to avoid, obviously, and scan for. And scanning couldn't happen until, you know, a certain period of the construction phase. Mm-hmm. And so making sure that all of those 
we're in the right location. And then looking at things like uh, the building window glass, there was an existing building that unfortunately obsolete. Um, it, it absolutely would have been a, a stranded asset, low ceiling heights, tiny windows, structural facade, not much that we could do to make that building um, a really pleasant experience and, and leasable for the future. We're doing everything that we can to reduce the embodied carbon with the new development. And one of them is recycling the window panes of the old building into new window panes for the new building. Mm. And, and so those kinds of collaborations with the contractor are the things that we talk about and, and really challenging the sources of the materials and, and thinking together about what we can do that would be really unique and, and make our building special. So I think new development sounds like a, a really straightforward, easy concept, but in the places where we're doing it, it's in these really restricted locations. It's it's very challenging. I read an article in the Times, I think, uh, a couple months ago about deconstructing a building and the cost of deconstructing and then recycling or reusing almost every nut, bolt, and pipe in the building. I don't mm -hmm. know if you saw mm -hmm. that article. It, it, I'm pretty sure it was somewhere in Scandinavia, maybe Amsterdam. It... it or do you have to do that? No, that sounds like a fantastic article. I'm going to look it up. I'll try to find we it. Don't, oh, thanks. We don't have to do that. Um, I think that's that kind of approach is always our intent to follow best practice. But uh -huh. but no, th that there's a lot of discussion around circular economy and circular construction in the Nordics in particular right now, where you do reuse everything and repurpose it, and there's nothing brand new. And I think that's absolutely something that we should strive for. I went to a conference on it when I was in Stockholm last November. Uh -huh. um, and so there's a lot of really exciting ideas coming out of that space. It's not required yet, but I think in a region like that, where they're uh -huh. thinking about it in such sophisticated ways, it could happen in the future. It yeah. could be a requirement. And as you acquire buildings, are, are you acquiring... And if you do, what's your engagement in assessment of the existing asset? And I'll ask a third question at the same time. If you look at an existing asset, you might actually want to buy an existing asset with more challenges, not no challenges, because there's value add to carbon. Absolutely. So yes, we are acquiring. We don't acquire at any specific rate or pace. It depends what comes mm -hmm. along and it has to be the right fit for our portfolio and our investors. Um, but we're constantly looking and evaluating a number of our markets and, and sustainability is definitely considered as a value add aspect of that investment. As you say, if, you know, we, one of our specialties as a company is taking really challenging situations and assets and delivering results that outperform our underwriting. Right. Just because we have this opportunity for the long-term patient capital and, the ability to do it in a really thoughtful way. And so my involvement in the acquisitions process really depends. If, if we get to the point of due diligence, then working closely with a consultant to dig into the, the consumption of the building and opportunities for equipment upgrades and things like that. But definitely looking at buildings that are on the brink of being obsolete and taking our, our internal development expertise to to turn it around and make it a you know high quality asset 
is definitely something that we love to do. Yeah. I, I want to see more of this because obsolete office buildings are a huge asset class now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and as absolutely. a huge asset class, let's, you know, and people obviously are talking about transitioning those to Resi. It was on one of our last podcasts as well mm -hmm. with Post Brothers mm -hmm. that do a lot of that and are making mm -hmm. some big bets in D.C. But as we play this through, that requires expertise and there's money and expertise. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think two examples of where we've successfully done it, even ahead of this current focus on redeveloping obsolete buildings is the two that I mentioned earlier, 100 California Street in San Francisco and 25 Cannon in London. Mm -hmm. Both assets were really at the brink of needing something that was really complex and challenging. And I think a lot of other investors wouldn't have touched it. But, but with a long-term approach, it really opens up doors and, and makes a lot of things possible. Right. And we talked about your assessment of all of the assets from an asset management standpoint within the company. And so you must have a partnership with your head of asset management to go through the buildings and be affecting every CapEx change to help in this regard. Definitely. So we are in budget season right now full force budget season. And Mark, who's on our executive council that I mentioned earlier, he oversees all of the asset management for our company. And I am on his monthly calls with the regional office heads to uh, share information with them or hear what's going on across the markets, make sure that we're all aligned. And then each of our assets annually goes through a series of workshops called strategic asset planning, where we go through you know, the next five years and, and talk about important themes and goals for the assets. And uh, I join every single one of them. So across the time zones, and sometimes these calls are, you know, four hours each. It's, it's a bit of a, um, a focused June, shall we say, I bet. but it's really interesting to talk through with them. How can sustainability improve your asset in terms of the business plan for the asset and and what about sustainability are you hearing in your market that will help leasing and how can we make your jobs easier mm -hmm. uh, it's a really interesting process and so then in terms of the actual budgeting piece and how that translates into where do we upgrade equipment you know Right now, we're really focused on equipment that is at end of useful life and yep. doing the right thing and making the right decisions, but also looking closely at at the forward-looking plans for those assets, analyzing what, what it would take to really convert it if, if there's enough roof space for air source heat pumps, or if there isn't, what else could we do? Are there alternate hybrid solutions to make the building use less gas in the meantime? And, and taking that putting them in the reports so that we can hand it to the asset management team and say, you might not be ready to spend this capital now, but if there becomes a leasing event where it would be valuable and you want to accelerate it, let us know because we've sorted it out. And so that's, that's our intent of what we're working on now. It, it's interesting looking this through the lens of not pain in the ass, not compliance, but opportunity and that, and knowing where you might go because it's really going to affect leasing, that mm -hmm. it is a driver of leasing. And Absolutely. leasing is a subjective 
thing. A tenant's decision to be in your building and to pay whatever rent they're going to be is subjective, not objective. And you could touch that side of their thinking. Sure. Well, it is. But I think operating costs are a real part of that That's equation. Nice. And especially when we're talking about re- tenant retention, not necessarily net new tenants, but keeping our existing tenants happy. You know, we have a building in Sydney that we put in some optimization software to reduce the energy consumption of the building. And really quickly in the second quarter of this year, which was the first quarter that was fully operational, the operating costs of that building were 8% lower than they were in Q2 of last year. And so having that kind of immediate impact that we can share with tenants and say, this is what we're committing to doing on your behalf, I, I think absolutely has a direct impact on on the leasing conversations. Cool. We're going to have to wrap up soon. So I have a a number of questions that are kind of quicker answer questions versus deep dive into the subjects we've been covering. One is in the last six months, ESG carbon has become a political issue, sadly, and people have been attacking those who care about this stuff as woke, whatever all this means. And so there's only one right answer to the question, but is this a fad? Are we talking about something that's going to pass in a couple of years and we won't be talking about this anymore in a few years? Any comments about how you cope with that noise? Maybe that's the right question. How do you cope with the noise? Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, we're a global company and this is not a big conversation in most of our markets. It absolutely continues to be a value adds for our, for our assets. And viewing this, viewing our approach on sustainability as reducing risk for regulatory compliance and market leasing, boosting NOI, driving value. This is what we continue to stay focused on because we're hearing from our tenants that it's important to them. And is it important to the tenants as a fad? Again, or because they're from Europe and Europeans care about this more than we do because they're crazy? I don't think they're crazy. I think this is definitely a long-term. I mean, if you think about why we're doing it in the first place, I have a a seven-year-old and a three-year-old, and I would love for them to be able to occupy the buildings that we are creating and maintaining today. I don't think this is something that we can, it's not an industry that we can view as disposable. If you think back to ancient Rome, this is something that's going to be around for a long time. And if we do it right, it's, it's energy efficient and it's creating smart spaces. And I think staying focused on the experience of the place is really the, the ultimate goal that we have to stay focused on. Yeah. It's interesting. One thing I will take away from this conversation is you're walking through Rome and realizing what persistent real estate means and what Mm -hmm. the fabric of a neighborhood that speaks to you means, and then getting into the business because you felt that. Mm -hmm. And you (laughs) still do, right? It's still absolutely. Most of us in real estate have that experience and we're Mm -hmm. investors too. Yeah. Thanks. No, it's, I think it's really um, important to be curious and to think about the ultimate purpose and value of, of why we're doing it. Yeah. Last question on leading voices is always your advice for a young person getting into the real estate business. <laughs> Thanks. Well, I'm chuckling because 
I was listening to Brad's recording last week and I was going to say a number of the same things that he said about, you know, being curious and always learning and having a good mentor and, and things like that. And all of those are absolutely important, but there's a couple of things that I would add to it. And that is being open to other people's perspectives. That was definitely something that I learned to be really valuable because as you say, sustainability touches every aspect of the business. And it's important to understand a little bit about each of those aspects and respect it and and maybe sometimes pivot your thinking if you learn something new. And also don't be intimidated. It's a really quickly evolving field. It's similarly to the different perspectives, it's most valuable to have different perspectives coming into it. And so if you are passionate and you're driven and you're curious, you can make it happen. Hmm. It's interesting. I think of a young person coming into this business, this business meaning sustainability in the built environment. And I could see a young person coming in and feeling, coming in idealistic without the knowledge of the business, but with the knowledge of the sustainability stuff and technologies, and then feel like they're battling against both the existing buildings and the existing people who are going to move slower than them. And Mm -hmm. it may take them four or five years to be open to other people's perspectives and have the patience to understand how to get stuff done Mm -hmm. versus what they learned. Absolutely. Patience is a really critical aspect of this. I, I'm not generally a patient person, but mm-hmm. I am persistent. And I think learning how to balance those two is really important. And also being open to gaining adjacent experiences that if you're looking to get into sustainability, and maybe there's an opening in the development team or the asset management team, understanding how important those departments are to sustainability, and gaining that experience is is a really important part of the role. And, and if you are lucky enough to get a sustainability-focused role right off the bat, really learning as much as you can about those other departments is only going to help your success so that it's it's not just an idealistic battle. Totally true. And you did that as project manager. And I actually yes. fear for the people who walk in with the sustainability badge without the already knowledge of the business if they don't combine the sustainability badge with one or another discipline or perspective on the business, they could come in and be really frustrated and pissed off over five years. And we're not moving fast enough, which we aren't, (laughs) but we got to do what we got to do. Absolutely. Cool. Hey, Caroline, thank you very much. This was a great conversation. I really appreciated having you on the show. Thank you, Matt. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Please remember, if you're enjoying Leading Voices, to share an episode with a friend or get them to subscribe. If they're podcast wary and not sure how to find and subscribe on their phone, go ahead and take their phone in your hand and subscribe for them. And add another few of your favorite podcasts to their list to get them started. They'll thank you for it. You can also find episodes of the show on our website, which you can find at zrgpartners.com slash leadingvoices. And if you have comments or discussion about this episode or leading voices in general, or if you're seeking help in real estate human capital solutions, recruiting or consulting especially, please contact me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. Thanks for being a listener to Leading Voices. <laughs>